Hello, good evening, and welcome to the podcast. You are listening to Ian Seven's Sleep Hour, Episode 2, Part 1, Dropping Off. I am Ian, and this is a podcast about sleep, dreams, and the people who love them both. It's 1.20am here now. Thank you for joining me and inviting me to join you in the waning moments of your consciousness. I hope you're warm, comfortable, quiet and at rest, sitting in a chair that cradles your form or lying on a bed that envelops you, ready to pass beyond the waking world to the place where dreams are made. There are no loud or coarse sounds in this podcast. The volume will be consistent, so if you set your playback device to a comfortable level based on my voice as you hear it now, you can rest in the knowledge that the rest of the podcast will not disturb you. This is the official podcast of the Dream Space Fellowship The Sleep Sheep of the Week for this month are provided by Ira Thomas and her husbands David and Evan of Dolwyn Farm, Ceredigion, a farm of 311 acres, five miles east of Aberystwyth. The sheep are pure-breed Llanwenogs, a placid, smart-looking black-faced sheep prize for its meat and fine wool. The Thomases are themselves a bit of a rarity, keeping a herd of 61 of this breed that continues to wane in popularity. What they lack in bulk, they make up for in their reliable lambing, and the Thomases have no plans to divest their remaining stock. Diochenvar to the Thomas family for the loan of their sheep this week. This week's episode is brought to you by sheep number 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46 and 47. This is your Aneric weather forecast. Dreams this week have a low chance of allowing you to reach your destination, particularly when time is of the essence. Public transport may face widespread cancellations and private vehicles are liable to arbitrary malfunction. You may wish to defer your trip to a future date or make alternative arrangements for accommodation. Clothes, while initially covering most parts, are likely to fade or disappear as the dream continues, providing clear and unimpeded views. Tourist numbers are expected to increase accordingly. Now to Dictionary Corner. Raindrops on roses and Germanic morphemes on Latinate roots. These are a few of my favourite words. Ergodic. E 
A-G-O-D-I-C. Ergodic is an adjective of Greek etymology, most commonly used in science and mathematics, that describes a system that cannot be predicted when sufficient time has passed. Informally, one might use it to describe a pattern that frequently changes. Used in a sentence, such as Is this St. John's desk? I saw him here in Latin yesterday. I've no idea, old sport. These desk assignments are frightfully ergodic. Ergodic. The word certainly derives from the Greek word ergon, meaning work, but it is unknown whether the original compound was intended to include odos, meaning path, or idos, meaning form. It is first attested in the late 19th century publications of the Austrian physicist Ludwig Boltzmann. Ergodic. Baustrophedon. B-O-U-S-T-R-O-P-H-E-D-O-N. Baustrophedon is also an adjective of Greek etymology, describing writing that alternates direction on successive lines, often with inversion, lateral mirroring, or 180 degree rotation, used in a sentence. I told you to make notes on the lesson, Jenkins, but this is gibberish. I can read it, sir. It's simply bostrophedon. Bostrophedon. The word is a compound of two Greek words, baus, meaning ox, and strophein, meaning to turn over. Together, it refers to the turning over of soil during ploughing. It is first attested as an English word in 1699, but the practice of writing in alternate directions dates back at least to the ancient Greeks and is present in several other ancient cultures. Baustrophedon An obituary We take a moment to remember Alphonse the teddy bear, no longer cuddled by Maxwell, his 14-year-old human. Alphonse was packed into a box for the final time this week. The long and successful bond between Alphonse and Maxwell would have seemed improbable before the bear's purchase. He was the last bear unsold at the toy shop when Maxwell's mother, with only a week of her pregnancy remaining, initially took him from the shelf. It wasn't until she reached the register that she noticed the wool that marked its lip had separated and become unravelled. She decided against her purchase and left Alphonse with the shop assistant, who placed him in a storeroom for disposal. It was only after her son was born and diagnosed with the unilateral partial cleft lip that she remembered the bear with the unravelled mouth who she had chosen not to adopt. Fortunately, Alphonse had not yet been discarded. He was gratefully purchased and became an integral member of the family. The bear's mouth was re-sewn the same day that Maxwell underwent his lip reconstruction surgery, 
and the two became inseparable throughout Maxwell's childhood. Alphonse accompanied Maxwell on the journey to his first day at school and waited all day in the car for his return. He joined him in the sleeping bag on his first scout camp and held his hand on Maxwell's first transatlantic flight. All who knew the bear agreed that they had never known a more faithful companion. In the years following Maxwell's ascension to high school, Alphonse moved several times, first to the bedside table, then the dresser, and eventually the top of the wardrobe. Affection becoming more infrequent with each passing year. This autumn, when Maxwell brought his first girlfriend home to see his room, Alphonse was quickly dropped in a drawer out of sight. In the end-of-year consolidation that followed the delivery of new presents, Maxwell's mother packed Alphonse into his final resting place in a memory box in the attic. We commemorate his service and celebrate his life. Rest in peace, Alphonse. The Sleep Hour podcast has six parts. Still to come, in a lecture on something you don't need to know, we'll be learning about cylindrical map projections. All the five chords played slowly on a synthesizer are 13th chords. And Dream With Me of Nearby Worlds will visit the onyx caves of the Calico Coast. First, it is time to relax. Part 2. Step-by-step instructions for lying still. The secret word is russet. Welcome to our guided relaxation session. Today's guided relaxation focuses on the tension we hold in our bodies and how powerful visualisation techniques can help us to fully relax. Position yourself so you are at your most comfortable. You will need to sit or lie still for the next 10 minutes. So arrange your body now to make it the most pleasurable possible experience. If you are lying, you might consider lying flat on your back with your arms relaxed by your sides and your head supported by a soft pillow. If you are sitting, try to recline slightly so you no longer have to support your head on your neck muscles. You may wish to place your hands flat on your thighs or by your side. Begin to breathe slowly and calmly holding the air in your lungs for a moment before relaxing your chest and letting it escape at its own pace. If you joined me for the first podcast, you may want to use the breathing techniques we learned together then. But that is not essential. Just breathe slowly and calmly, falling into a rhythm of in-breaths and out-breaths, and as you breathe, sit or lie as relaxed as you can. This session will use visualisation 
to help us relax. To begin, as you breathe, let your mind empty. Hear my voice, feel your lungs inflate, and let all other thoughts flow from your mind like water, allowing them to sink and disappear into the tiny cracks of the ground around you. Watch them go and allow them to be gone. Breathe slowly and calmly. Bring your mind to your head and shoulders. The tension in our head and neck and shoulders can be difficult to release. Even when we're fast asleep, the muscles can be working hard to keep our neck and shoulders stiff. They are our loyal servants. Day after day, they are tasked with keeping our heads up, alert and ready to move, to turn to see, to nod, to listen, to eat or to smell. It is no wonder they find it so hard to take a break. Our first visualisation gives neck and shoulders permission to stop their hard work. Imagine the sensation of the last moment of the last day at school. A bell rings to mark the final moment of confinement and the start of the long summer vacation. As they burst through the doors into glorious sunshine and weeks of leisure stretching ahead, seemingly unbounded, breathe out and release them from their duty. Settle even deeper into the comfortable support that is holding your body. You have no more expectations for them, no more need for their tension or hard work. They're done. It's time to relax. Continue to breathe deeply and take a few moments to let that visualisation drain out of your thoughts into the ground as you let your thoughts before drain away. Breathe deeply and calmly. Bring your mind now to your upper arm on your right side, the area from your elbow over your shoulder to the base of your neck. To fully relax this area, you are going to first tense it. Deliberately tightening your muscles allows you to relax them further. We hold little knots of unconscious tension in all kinds of muscles on our body, even when we think we're relaxed. And because they are unconscious, just willing ourselves to relax will not work. This technique helps. To make it more powerful, I want you to visualise with me. Imagine a crew of engineers is moving your shoulder. They have secured it with straps and ropes, attached it to a crane and are about to lift it. 
It is a heavy job, so the lifting will be gradual. But the cargo isn't delicate. When its final place is located, it will be lowered quickly to the ground with a thump. Raise your shoulder now. Let it feel like a crane pulling it higher, requiring no effort from you. Hold it in a raised position without breathing for a second or two. Then exhale and allow it to fall back to the ground with a thump. All your outbreaths should happen at the natural speed of the fall of your chest. Just as your shoulder falls at its natural speed to the ground. Now bring your mind to your left shoulder. Pause for a moment to visualise the construction crew securing the load, making sure it is safe and ready to be lifted, attaching it to the crane and preparing for the manoeuvre. Feel the crane pull your left shoulder up into the air, raise it and hold it aloft for a moment as you keep the air in your lungs, then breathe out and let your shoulder fall back to the ground with a thump, relaxed and in its final destination. The crisscrossing layered muscles of our backs are constantly at work to adjust our posture. Your back can move and twist in all directions. Each possible movement requires a different specialised muscle. These thick bands either side of your spine can hold all kinds of tension and that is difficult to release. We have lifted then dropped the cargo at the top of the back. Now we will do the same with the hips at the base. Continue to breathe deeply and slowly. First, visualise your right hip being prepared to be lifted. Pause for a moment before the lift begins. Visualise the crane pulling up your joint. Raise it slightly and hold it in midair with your chest full. Then exhale, relax and let your hip fall to the ground with its tension released. Now, repeat the process with your left. Visualise your hip being prepared. Pause. Feel it being lifted. Hold it for a moment in midair as you hold your breath. Then relax, breathe out and let it fall to the ground with a thump. Continue to breathe deeply and slowly as you inspect your work. Bring your thoughts to each joint in turn and confirm their state of total profound relaxation. All is well. It is time to rest. Part three, five chords played slowly on a synthesizer.
The secret word is eggplant.
A lecture on something you don't need to know. The secret word is violet. Today we'll be talking about cylindrical map projections. The Earth is a globe, a sphere. For convenience, most maps are flat on sheets of paper. It is impossible to accurately draw shapes that live on the surface of a sphere on a flat sheet of paper. Every flat map is inaccurate in some way. When we design a map, we have to choose the kind of inaccuracy we can live with. And that depends on how we want the map to be used. An early important use for maps was navigation, particularly navigation using compass bearings. It made sense to create maps that favoured these directions. Upright at 45 degrees on the map corresponded to northeast in the real world. Down on the map was always south. The distances didn't matter quite as much. As you set out in your ship, it was worth knowing how far you needed to go, to make sure you had enough food, for example. But day to day, when you used your map, it was to navigate based on direction. The most common map we're all used to seeing is called the Mercator projection, and this is exactly that kind of map. Directions are correct on the Mercator projection, but distances aren't. Neither are the shapes of land masses. A big downside with the Mercator projection, or perhaps you might think it a benefit, depending on where you live, is that the land masses towards the north and south end of the map appear much bigger than those nearer the equator. Greenland, most famously, appears approximately the same size as Africa, where in reality it is almost 15 times smaller. The British Isles are a similar size to India, though India could swallow them 13 times over and still have room for dessert. It is often claimed that the Mercator projection is a political map. It favours the old colonial powers of Northern Europe and diminishes the size of their colonies. This may well be true, but it is a side effect. The map was designed to facilitate navigation and it is hard to imagine a better projection than navigating by compass. Fortunately, we rarely need to navigate across the world by compass anymore, and so other maps may be preferable. To address the issue of political bias, equal area maps may be better. These represent land masses with the correct relative area to one another, the United Kingdom doesn't get to look big and muscly just because it's at northern latitude, and India is the size you'd expect a subcontinent to be. Areas are correct relative to one another. Unfortunately, we cannot have our cake and eat it. If our map is equal area, 
landmasses cannot be the correct shape, and straight lines on the globe cannot be straight lines on the map. Distances will not be correct, and compass directions cannot be consistent. On the Mulveda equal area projection, Alaska appears vertically above Mexico, whereas on the Golpitas equal area projection, of which we will say more soon, Africa is more than twice as tall as it is wide, where in reality it is roughly the same size in both directions. It is important to understand there is no one best map projection. All of them are inaccurate. If you want an accurate map of the world, you will have to buy a globe. I've used the word projections a lot so far, but I've not explained what they are. Cartographers use the word projection to mean any conversion from the spherical coordinates of the real world, that is, latitude and longitude, to a flat representation. It gets its name from a thought experiment. Imagine if the surface of the Earth were translucent to make a map, position a piece of paper somewhere in space, position a light somewhere else and turn it on. The illumination projects the surface of the Earth onto the piece of paper. The simplest projection would be a flat piece of paper and light falling in one direction. The map would be relatively undistorted at its centre, but towards the edge of the circle, the surface of the Earth is side-on to the light, making it unrecognisable. This simple configuration is called an azimuthal projection, and it is used as a practical map for small areas of the Earth's surface. A map of Antarctica may well be azimuthal, for example. More complicated projections still use the piece of paper and light analogy, but have a different setup. If you wrap the Earth in a tube of paper, project your map, and then unroll the tube onto a flat sheet, you have a cylindrical projection. Cylindrical projections are the ones we're most familiar with. If we wrap our tube of paper around the equator, so the holes are above the north and south poles, then the lines of longitude will appear as vertical lines on our map, and the lines of latitude will appear horizontal. Because we're not actually working with lights and a translucent earth, we can leave behind the idea of a projection and think of other ways to convert latitude into horizontal lines on our map. The Mercator projection is the most famous. In order to keep the compass directions consistent, one degree of latitude always has the same height on the paper. The lines of latitude and longitude form a regular grid, and this is why the area is so distorted. If you think about a globe, with lines marked every 10 degrees of latitude and longitude, for example, one square of this grid will be large at the equator, but much skinnier near the poles. In fact, it won't be a square at all as you hit the pole. And this immediately suggests a different approach. If we keep our lines of latitude horizontal and our lines of longitude vertical, but we space the lines of latitude closer together as we arrive at the pole, we could make it so each rectangle of the map 
has the same area as the area on the globe. It wouldn't help with our triangle suddenly becoming a rectangle, but we could make sure at least that the rectangle had the same surface area as the triangle does. This is very common. The resulting map is an equal area, but still has the familiar rectangular structure we're all used to. Using this approach, there will be somewhere on the Earth, in fact, a line of latitude both north and south of the equator, where the shape is correct. The cylindrical equal area projections, of which there are many, differ in where this tiny band lies. The Lambert projection is undistorted at the equator, the Behrman projection at 30 degrees north and south, and the Gaul-Peters projection at the 45 degree parallels, which happen to run through the middle of Europe, and that is not a coincidence. So while Europe is not made special by artificially being larger than it is in reality, as it is in the Mercator projection, it is made special by being the correct shape. After a successful PR campaign, including grandiose claims that the Peters projection is unique in showing the world as it truly is, it was adopted in a number of educational systems in Europe. But as we've seen, it is no more or less accurate than any other projection. We end with the truth stated at the outset. It is impossible to show the round earth accurately on a flat map. To draw a map is to make a decision about what kinds of accuracy you seek and with what distortions you will disfigure the globe. Part 5. Dream with me of nearby worlds. The secret word is emerald. The guest ambience today is a boat bobbing at harbour on the lapping waves of the sea. As you drowse and listen to my voice, I invite you to dream with me of a nearby world. We can all share dreams. Listen as you drift into a state of meditation and relaxation on the cusp of sleep. Relax and give your thoughts permission to ebb. Allow the words to flow over you, soaking into your mind as I take you on the journey. A visit to the onyx caves of the Calico Coast. Some people listen many times until the words and images are familiar enough to be part of them. Others find it easier to share dreams when dropping back off to sleep after waking in the night or when dozing on a lazy weekend morning. Whenever or wherever you are listening, let go your conscious mind and dream with me. The Calico Coast lies on the western shore of the Coral Sea, from dawn in the north to the start of the Black Mountains at Port Lorenz in the south. It is named for the pale cliffs that line the coast, with patches of minerals in red, black and brown, like the coat of a tortoiseshell cat. Such cats were held in high regard by the original settlers of the area, and are still common in the villages that dot the cliff tops. 
there are few breaks in the cliffs. Where in other coasts, the stream would cut its way to the sea, gouging out a cramped harbour for settlers to fish from, the rock of the Calico coast seems to swallow any watercourse that approaches, cutting elaborate caves that link in a network that people have not yet fully explored. Some are dangerous, liable to flood in minutes when it rains on the ground above. Others are beautiful, with pristine rock formations and vivid minerals. Yet others contain seams of precious stones. It is these jewels that give the labyrinth its name, the Onyx Caves. The town of Volmar, the largest settlement on the coast road, is famed for its crafts and jewellery. Four miles from the cliff top, it is the starting point of our journey. A cobbled path leads towards the ocean, rutted by the wheels of carts bringing their cargo from the onyx mines. We pass huts and storerooms that mark the sites of active claims and take a smaller, unpaved path through the heather-lined hills. The path ends at a natural bowl, in the base of which is the black mouth of the caves. We light our oil lamps and descend into the darkness. The passage opens into a chamber 50 yards across, but only 10 deep. The walls and ceiling are smooth with ripples like the sand in a dry riverbed. Five centuries ago, the indigenous people of the area lived in caves such as this, before the conquerors came from the east with their iron weapons and appetite for shiny things. Low down in the cave's crannies are the remnants of their art, pictures of the animals they had hunted, scribed in charcoal on the stone. Geometric marks show their primitive accounting system, a record of their hunting prowess, or a library of wisdom for where the most fecund herds could be found. With our oil lamps, we can go deeper into the caves than the settlements of those original inhabitants. Several fissures lead down, and we squeeze through one to emerge in another cavern beyond. The space is larger and more circular, and there is the distinct smell of guano in the air. Pick marks and scrapes on the walls show people have mined here, but their soft edges show it has been some time. In the distance, across the space, is a bright crack of light where a slender passage makes its way to the surface. This cave used to be the roosting home of thousands of bats. Over decades, or perhaps centuries, their droppings collected on the floor. Farmers lowered themselves precariously into the darkness to scrape at the cavern floor for its fertiliser. All is gone now, save for the lingering smell. The disturbed bats have also moved on to find a safer sleeping spot. The farmers, who mined out the cavern for fertiliser, noticed the sparkling colours in the stone walls and delved deeper in search of riches. We leave through a low passage whose roof is supported by props and wooden arches, part natural, part cut through the rock with clumsy handheld tools. Where the stone is coloured, 
the surface has been gouged in search of richer veins. None yielded enough to make concerted mining profitable, and the prospectors soon moved on. The rough-cut walls were left to reflect back our oil lamps in a rainbow of dazzling, shimmering hues. At the end of the pit, the miners broke through into a vast and beautiful space, only the first chamber of which can be seen from the end of the passage. We emerge into a garden of stalagmites, each twice our height. They taper from a base too big to wrap one's arms around to a delicate tip on which a single water droplet rests. The sides of each are formed from rippled limestone as if the rock had oozed over itself in waves. A thin sheen of moisture covers the floor and we pick our way over its slippy surfaces to descend further into the great cave. We appear to pick our way at random around the bulky columns of rock, but eventually we arrive at a wooden bridge. The bridge departs into the darkness over an underground lake. In the distance, the rushing, tumbling sound of water can be heard, but from one side of the bridge, its furthest point cannot be seen. We stop above the water and stoop to drink. It is cool and fresh, with the delicate taste of water filled through layers of rock. As we continue along the bridge, the white noise grows louder and more distinct. It is the sound of a waterfall, where the lake crosses a natural stone barrier and descends into a further cave below. A stair, clumsily hacked into the rock, picks its way down a drier portion of the same barrier beside where the bridge ends. We gingerly descend, moving away from the cascade, its crushing sound replaced by a more rhythmic lapping of water. At first, the walls appear to glow, but as we move on, our lamps are outshone by the distinct light of the sun. One side of the cave is open to the air. The bottom is flooded by salt water that extends out of the cave mouth into the sea beyond. We've reached the cliff face on the Calico coast. A wooden jetty fringes the space, a simple harbour at which a small ship is moored. Its sail is furled and its ropes creak gently as it bobs at the dock. This sheltered, secret harbour was built by smugglers and used to evade the import duty on rare spices from across the sea. The ship and the dock is our destination. Transport for those who journey through dreams. Sitting on the deck, reclining against the gunwales, are our fellow travellers. There is plenty of room for us to join the group and share our experiences. Share stories of the places we have been and tales of the nearby waking world that is our home. Many have visited here before. Some you might recognise, some you will share dreams with again in the future.
Sleep Hour podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Our time together is almost at an end. I hope you enjoyed relaxing, listening to five chords together, hearing cylindrical map projections explained, and visiting the nearby world of the Calico Coast. The final part of this podcast fades gradually to silence, so I will sign off here, say goodnight, and let our time together ebb gently away. The Sleep Hour podcast is produced in association with the Dream Space Fellowship. I am Ian Seven, the series writer and presenter. Additional voice work by Melanie Jane. Additional audio production by Tim Stafer and Erica Van Dorn. Graphic design by Polyjuice. You can subscribe to receive future episodes using iTunes or the podcasting app of your choice. Copies of the episode are available on YouTube, accompanied by a simple animation. And you can receive updates by subscribing to the Ian 7 YouTube channel. More information, credits and show notes can be found at ian7.uk. That's I-A-N number 7 dot U-K. I hope you can join me for the next episode where I'll be playing a diminished chord, explaining ancient manuscripts of the Bible and inviting you to join me in the library of Water's Meat. For now, sleep well, dream deeply, take care and good night. Part 6. A Connoisseur's Guide to Artisanal White Noise The secret word is rose. Today's white noise is Bishop's Weasel, a single vintage sound from the popular Milesburg distillery. It took its name from a local legend in which a clergyman's pet saved her bishop's horse from drowning. Milesburg is known for their light, high-pitched hisses, but this special sound has more structure and substance. A deep, throbbing noise, like a distant thunderstorm heard from the cellar, is flavoured with tufts of white noise that crash over the sound like waves on the seashore. Between them, a ribbon of coloured noise binds the sound into a cohesive whole. The noise is robust enough to stand up to angst or even residual anger. It is perfect paired with the elusive sleep that follows a stressful day. White Noise magazine originally gave it a 6 out of 10, though remarked in its end-of-year retrospective that its first score does not do the sound justice. It reveals its true value by its longevity and dependability. Enjoy. Enjoy.